Nehemiah chapter 8. Well, good morning. I'm Pastor Jay, and it is a privilege to worship along with you. Becky and I love standing out with you and worshiping through giving, through sacrament, through preaching, through singing. This morning, we are in between two series. We just finished a series in Gospel according to Matthew, looking at the five sermons of Jesus Matthew built his gospel around. And next weekend, we're starting a new series in the life of Joseph, a man who suffered incredibly at the hand of God and yet was delivered by God and has material takes up almost 20% of the Genesis narrative. It's a very strong, powerful story in the life of the church. And we're going to spend a couple weeks, several weeks, diving into Joseph's life. This morning, as we prepare for the Lord's table, I want us to look at Nehemiah chapter 8, one of the most straightforward, encouraging chapters about the power of God's Word in the Bible. Uh, and one of the established facts of history is that gospel power is unleashed when the Scriptures are opened. Got to do that first. Some churches don't even open the Bible. When the Scriptures are opened, when they're read when they're preached, and they're obeyed by God's people. God's power is unleashed. Now, sometimes it's unleashed slowly, gradually, quietly. For example, in pioneer missions, where the work is often long and laborious as God's Word and His power is unleashed. Sometimes it's slowly released through Bible translation projects, like through Whitcliffe, or through the weekly preaching of the Word in a congregation's life. Sometimes gospel power and God's power is released, in our terms, very suddenly. For instance, through the Reformation or through a revival or through the Great Awakening or the Second Great Awakening or the revival in Wales in 1904 or the revival, huge revival in Korea, 1907. So sometimes slowly, sometimes quickly, either way, when the Word of God is open with God's people and they hear it, and they embrace it, and they obey it, God's power is unleashed. So if you're here today, and you are desperate for God's power to be unleashed in your life, in your situation, in your pain, in your suffering, in your past, there is no more important subject than being immersed in God's Word, because that is where the power is, through the spoken Word, through the preached Word, through the read Word, the believed Word, that's where the Holy Spirit connects with the believer. We're going to look at this chapter because in Nehemiah 8, one of my favorite chapters on God's Word, we see three responses that are very clear, boom, 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 that are required for God's power to be unleashed in our lives, our churches, our families, and our nation. Here they are. Hearing, accepting, and then submitting. Now, you can pick different words, but hearing it, that's the first step, but that's not enough. Then welcoming it, embracing it, but that's not enough. For gospel power to be unleashed, it then thirdly has to be surrendered to. It has to be obeyed. It has to be submitted to. And so we're going to break these down one at a time. One at a time. Now, some of you know the book of Nehemiah well. Some of you sort of know it. Some of you, frankly, you've never heard of it. So let me just try to level the playing ground here for just a minute and give you a very quick high flyover of Nehemiah and what's going on. 
chronologically, this book belongs at the end of your Old Testament. And for a number of reasons I'm not going to get into, in most English translations it's put in the middle. That makes it very confusing for people who are reading through their Old Testament when you suddenly get to Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther, which took place at the end of the Old Testament. So just to let you know, this is really taking place at the end of your Old Testament. Nehemiah is not a clergyman, he's not a pastor, he's not a religious person in that sense, or he's not in a religious profession. He is a cup-bearer. You all know what a cup-bearer is? This is someone who tasted the wine and or the food before it would go to the king, just to make sure it was safe. If this guy drops over dead, probably don't want to drink the wine or eat food. That was his job. He served King Artaxerxes in what is today Iran. It was called the Persian Empire, which is broader than Iran, but roughly in Iran. Think of that. And in the opening verses in chapter 1, here's what's going on. He is serving faithfully. He seems well-beloved and well-accepted in that culture. But he is a Hebrew. He is from Jerusalem. That's his home city. That's not his, his people are not in the Persian Empire. But he is serving there. And word comes to him that the spiritual and physical condition of Jerusalem are not in good shape. That the wall that has surrounded the city is in decay. That the city is in decay spiritually. And the request that he come help lead a building project to rebuild the walls. And so he asked permission of King Artaxerxes, who is a pagan king. God in his providence, we know, has jurisdiction over Christians and unbelievers. He opens the king's heart. He gives him permission. Nehemiah gets a leave of absence, and off he goes to help lead the rebuilding effort. That's the basic line. Interestingly, as he helps lead this effort, he is met with intense opposition to his leadership. That is a whole separate sermon when it comes to the book of Nehemiah. And it's just a reminder, when you step into leadership, you sign up to take hits. You sign up to be misunderstood. You sign up to be criticized and to be attacked. That just goes with the territory, whether it's secular leadership or leadership in a local church. Leaders by design step in and they get attacked and hit. And Nehemiah is no exception. The intensity of the uh, attack on him was fierce, but I'm not going to spend time on that. Here's what's going on. The wall under his leadership was completed in an amazing 52 days. And once it was completed, Nehemiah calls for, in essence, we'll call it a Bible conference. Time to celebrate with the people, the preaching of the Word, and our equivalent, basically like a Bible conference. And a number of people speak at this conference. Ezra is one of them. And that brings us to chapter 8, where Ezra is going to read from the Bible, from the Hebrew Scriptures, specifically the Torah, the Pentateuch, and then he's going to deliver a sermon. So, Nehemiah 8, I'm going to pick up the story, verses 1 and following. And all the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gate, and they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses. So we're talking the Torah, the first five books of the Hebrew Bible. We call it today the Pentateuch. To bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. So Ezra the priest brought the law, the Torah, that's the Hebrew word there, before the assembly, both men and women, and all who could understand what they heard on the first day of the seventh month. So that's where we're at. Ezra is bringing out the law to read it. Drop down to verse 5. 
He's not the only one who re- reads and preaches, but he's, he's one of the main liners. Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was above the people. We don't know exactly what, but somehow he's in an elevated position to them. And as he opened it, the Torah, all the people stood. That's one of the verses where we get the tradition of standing in honor of something. A little bit like today in our culture, you know, you stand for the national anthem, or around the world you stand when uh, Handel's Messiah, the Messiah is played, you know, or the, or the Hallelujah Chorus comes on, you, you would stand. It's a, it's a sign of respect. The people stood in honor of God's Word, and he begins to expound it, read it, and explain it. We get down to verse 8. They read from the book, from the Torah of God, clearly, and they gave sense or they gave the meaning and understand so that the people, what's it say? understood the reading. They understood what was being read. That, ladies and gentlemen, is called preaching. That's basically what preaching is about. So here we come to a very essential ingredient. Everyone's attention. Kids, young people, here we come to an essential ingredient. If you are desperate for God's power, for gospel power to be released into your marriage, your family, your situation, your pain, your life, it begins by hearing and being immersed in Scripture. And specifically here, hearing begins with the faithful proclamation and preaching of the Scripture. Nehemiah and Ezra and these others are saying, look it, it's time to get back to God's Word. They're calling for national revival here. That's, that's what they're doing. And a key part of that is hearing. That's not the end of it, but that's, that's where it begins, hearing the Word of God. Why? Because we know, this is very important, from the Apostle Paul in 2 Timothy chapter 3, that the Word of God is not like any other sacred text. That the Bible is set apart as the infallible, inspired, inerrant Word of God in a way that separates it from the rest of the pack. No other book can claim this, not the Quran, not the Buddhist scriptures, not the Upanishads of the Hindus, not the Book of Mormon, nothing else compares to the divine inspired Word of God. They knew that, the history of the church knows that, we know that. That is why this is so powerful and it goes back to what Paul said, because he says all scripture, 2 Timothy 3, is inspired, that is an English word translated from a Greek word that looks like Paul sort of invented. He took two words through the power of the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit led him to take two Greek words and put them together. Those two Greek words were God and breathe, or breath, and Paul creates this one big compound word, it's only used one time in the Bible, God breathe. And Paul says that is the apt description for this book. It's not just a record of what happened to the people. It's not just a record of their recollections and their, their uh, theological musings. When you open a Bible and you see here what is said, Jesus affirms this in Matthew 5, you're reading the very Word of God, the words of God, breathed out by God. And it's very interesting in 2 Timothy 3 that right after Paul makes this one of the most powerful declarations about the nature of God's Word, it is God-breathed. Just a couple verses later, 
Then he charges Timothy, this young pastor in Ephesus, he says, therefore, what's he say next, you know? Preach the word. Why? Because it is breathed out by God. It is unlike any other book. So biblical preaching is directly connected, don't miss this, to the authoritative nature of Scripture. When you find churches, clergy, denominations that have moved away from a belief in the inerrancy of Scripture, you will inevitably find a drifting away from biblical preaching. And you will find clergy and pulpits speaking about all kinds of topics, but not exposition of Scripture because they no longer believe it is the infallible, inerrant Word of God. So your view of preaching is inevitably connected to your view of inspiration. They go hand in hand. They always have, they always will. And because we here at this church and the Evangelical Free Church of America believe in the authoritative preaching of God's Word, it comes from our belief in the inerrancy of Scripture. It's right in our doctrinal statement. That is why it's so important that when we gather, we are attentive, we are listening, our Bibles are open, or our device is on, and we're following along in the text. And throughout history, no different than what we see here in Nehemiah chapter 8. No difference at all. All great revival movements, all great renewal movements have been anchored first and foremost in the public preaching and declaration of God's Word. Why? So that the masses can hear. That's, this, that's the point here. Whether it's the Reformation and the preaching of Martin Luther and Zwingli and Knox and Calvin, or whether it's the First Great Awakening and the preaching of you know, Whitfield and Wesley and Jonathan Edwards and Gilbert Tennant and all those folks, or whether it's the Second Great Awakening under Timothy Dwight and Barton Stone and Peter Cartwright, or whether it's Billy Graham, 1949, being catapulted to the national stage at his Los Angeles tent revival. When he started that revival, he was not a household name. Two months later, he was a household name. God honors the preaching of his word. Now, the lesson here is about renewal and revival, and it all goes back to the power of God's word. I want to show you one other passage that I think hammers home the power of the word more clearly than almost anywhere else. It's in the prophet Jeremiah, if you would turn there for just a minute. Jeremiah chapter 23. You have two similes. You know what a simile is? It's a comparison. It's giving an analogy by way of comparison. You have two similes given about God's Word that explain why it's so powerful. Jeremiah, prophet Jeremiah 23, chapter 23, verses 29 through verse 32. The reason that preaching is so connected to renewal and revival and gospel power is because of the nature of God's Word. It's breathed out by Him. And Jeremiah here gives us two similes given nowhere else in the Bible that explain just how powerful it is. So that if I am desperate for God's power to be unleashed in my marriage, my family, in my life, in my pain, in my suffering, in my situation, here's why it's so powerful. This is critical. Jeremiah chapter 23, verses 29 through 32. Hear this. This is God speaking. Is not my word like, here's the first simile, fire, declares the Lord, and like, here's the second simile, a hammer, 
that breaks the rock in pieces. Those are your two similes this morning. If you don't go away with anything else, go away with those two words, those two similes about the power of God's Word. It's like a fire. It's like a hammer that breaks a rock in pieces. Therefore, behold, I'm against the prophets. Now, you can, you can, when you see the word prophets, you could put in that phrase, clergy, televangelists. I'm against anybody who publicly is teaching the Word, declares the Lord, who steal my Word from one another. In other words, they're not paying attention to what God's really said. Behold, I'm against the prophets, the clergy, declares the Lord, who use their tongue and declare, so declares the Lord, when he clearly hasn't. Behold, I am against those who prophesy, that's an old word we use for preaching, who preach lying dreams, declares the Lord, and who tell them and lead my people astray, yes, clergy lead lots of people astray, by their, what, lies and their recklessness. When I did not send them or charge them, so they do not profit this people at all, declares Yahweh. That should terrify every seminary student. That should ter- terrify anybody thinking of going into ministry of any kind, professionally or on a lay level. If you're going to be involved teaching the Word of God to a Bible study, to a class, to a group, to some friends, or in a pulpit, or a classroom, or a seminary classroom, that paragraph should absolutely terrify you about what God views as reckless preaching. Because we will be evaluated and we will be graded one day about how faithful we were to God's Word. Better to not preach it than to get up and mess it all up. That takes us back to Nehemiah 8. Nehemiah 8. Bottom line, under this first one, hearing, hearing the Scriptures. No other book is God-breathed like the Bible. No other book. No other book is God-inspired like the Bible. And that is why, that is why it has the power to do things that all of us in here this morning are desperate for it to do. It has the power to change lives. It has the power to heal marriages. It has the power to bring peace in the midst of suffering. It has the power to repair relationships. It has the power to help us when we need wisdom, when we need correction, when we need adjustment in our thinking. All of us need adjustment in our thinking. When we need a rock, when we need hope, it has the power, friends, to release us from addictions, addictions to alcohol, addictions to fear, addictions to food, addictions to pornography, addictions to social media, addictions to religion. It has the power to release us and expose our sin and melt our resistance and open blinded eyes and bring us to the Savior. A couple years ago, we were down in Louisville visiting our youngest daughter and her family, and she had a friend in from Oslo, Norway, who had been a roommate of hers in college. But Ida's from Oslo. She lives in Oslo. She was just visiting. And I had a chance one afternoon, sitting in the front room with her, just to ask her her story. I said, how did you come to faith in Oslo? We know the church attendance in Oslo is very low in Norway. And she said, it's very interesting. She said, my parents are both atheists. They still are. And she said, when I was just a young teenager, I was out on the streets of Oslo walking around, and I heard somebody preaching the Word of God. She said, I'd never heard it before. She didn't grow up in a church. Church attendance in Norway is 
minimals down in the single digits. And even then, doesn't guarantee you're going to hear a biblical sermon. And she said, I heard the word of God and it sliced me. And it brought me to saving faith in Christ. That is the power of the word of God. And by the way, hearing is not the only way to take in the Bible. It begins with the preaching here. But it's not enough really to bring ultimate transformation. We have to be reading it. And even more than that, you know the word that has escaped modern American evangelicals that is in the Bible and the Puritans emphasize? Meditation on. Not Eastern meditation. Eastern meditation, you're supposed to empty yourself. That is not biblical. Biblical meditation is where I take a fragment of Scripture or I take a chunk of Scripture and I dwell on it. That is where the real life change comes in. Here's the key. You're all meditating on something all the time. All of us meditate on things all day long. We're either succumbing to lust, or we're thinking about who we want to get even with, or we're nursing past grudges and hurts, or we're thinking about how to earn more money. I mean, all of us are meditating all day long. The question is, are we doing what God says, meditating on His Word? That comes with hearing, then it comes with reading and memorizing. But even memorizing doesn't mean you're meditating on The real change, the Puritan says, comes by meditating on Scripture. That's where the deep change comes. Never forget Thomas Watson, the great Puritan, who said this, the devil is always trying to blow out the light of Scripture one way or another. And he's doing that in our lives. That leads to the second word, and that starts in verses 9 and following. That's why this chapter just unfolds. First, they had to hear it and understand it. That's not enough. People sit in church Every week, there's probably some here today, you're hearing it, you may be even understanding it, but you're not doing the second thing here, and that is welcoming it, embracing it, accepting it. So hearing the Bible is not enough. We have to embrace and accept its supremacy, its inerrancy, and its authority. Look at verses 9 to 12. As Ezra stood and the people stood, and as Ezra explained the Scriptures, the people not only understood God's Word, they embraced it. Verses 9 to 12. Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra the priest, the scribe, and the Levites, who taught the people, said to the people, this day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. Why were they weeping? Because they were moved by it. They loved it and heard it. They hadn't heard it in a long time. Verse 10. And he said to them, go your way, eat and drink sweet wine and send portions to anyone who has nothing ready. For this day is holy to the Lord and do not be grieved for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So the Levites calmed all the people. They did a big chill out (laughs) saying, be quiet for this day is holy. Do not be grieved. And all the people went their way Notice this, look at verse 12, to eat and drink and to send portions and to make great rejoicing because they had understood the words that were declared to them. Look at verse 9, the people wept as they heard the Torah read and there was great rejoicing, verse 12. In other words, they took God at His word, they welcomed what they heard, they embraced what they heard something that many fail to do today, including, as we said, many churches and many pastors. It's sad how many, I said many times, the denomination I grew up in did not take God's Word seriously. 
and there are many today. Becky and I were taking a walk yesterday in Woodstock, and we went by, I won't name the church, we went by a church, right in the front of the church, the sign, we celebrate gay pride. And I just stopped, said, a little louder probably than I should have, damnation on this church for, for, for celebrating something God has said is an abomination. That is not being faithful to the Word of God. And this goes on all the time. We were in church a couple years ago in Minneapolis, and we walked in, and I grabbed a brochure, as I often do. I'll grab a brochure, and if you're a pastor, you know you can grab stuff. You love to see what's in it. I opened the brochure, and here's what they said to describe their church. There's truth in the Bible, even if every word is not factual. That caught my attention. And then it went on, as if it couldn't get worse. We take the Bible seriously, but not literally. Close quote. This goes on all the time. I could give you example after example after example. It's tragic. People coming out, sincere people, wanting a word from God and clergy that get up and offer them pebbles and dirt and sand and not bread. And it's tragic. It's tragic. 100 years ago this last week, what I would consider the second most famous sermon in America was preached in New York City. Now, if I were to ask you, what's the most famous sermon in American history, what would come to mind? That man gets a sucker <laughs> and a gold star. Yes, Jonathan Edwards, July 8th, 1741, Enfield, Connecticut. By the way, it wasn't the first time Edwards had preached that sermon. He was a guest speaker that day, not in his home church. As far as we know, when he preached the same sermon in his home church, based in Deuteronomy 32, there's no recording of anything that happened that was unusual. It's when he was in Enfield that day, and that's the sovereignty of God, depending on when God wants to pour out unusual blessing on the preaching and when not, regular blessing versus unusual blessing. But he happened to be in Enfield, Connecticut that day as guest preacher, July 8th, very hot day, 1741. We're told Edwards preached like a whale, that he would go down. He just stood there and he would go down and he would come up and he would go down and he would come up and read. He said it was nothing spectacular the way he preached. But for some reason, God anointed and that sermon became an incredible tour de force. Now, if I were to ask you, what's the second most famous sermon in American history or one of them, I would put on the table that it was preached 100 years ago this last week in New York City by Harry Emerson Fosdick. Harry Emerson Fosdick was a prominent clergyman on the rise. He was 44 years old. He was pastor First Presbyterian in New York City, a historic church, famous church, and his star was on the rise. Except he was a theological liberal. He was known in many ways as America's pastor. He was as, he was as popular then as someone like a Chuck Swindoll is today, Rick Warren. I mean, he was immensely popular. He got up and he preached a sermon May 1922, May 21st, 1922. And the title of the sermon was this, Shall the Fundamentalist Win? Oh, look, I happen to have a copy right here. I bought this several years ago, and I read it. 
And yesterday afternoon, I sat down again after a couple years and reread it. This is nothing less than an all-out attack on biblical Christianity. Right here, he attacks the virgin birth, ridicules the belief in the inspiration and authority of God's Word, the doctrine of a substitutionary atonement of Christ on the cross for our sins, and the second coming of Christ, among other things. Harry Emerson Fosdick, you may say, well, you know, who is he? Is he a big deal? He went on to national fame. Two years later, he was invited to deliver the very prestigious Yale lectures on preaching at Yale. That was just two years later. And in the next six years, two times he was on the cover of Time magazine. This was not just a nobody. This was, in many ways, America's pastor at the time. Sadly. And I just bring this up because it was 100 years ago this week. Here's why I even bring it up more so. The irony of what he said in what's taken place. Harry Emerson Fosdick, 1922, blasted out in New York City and he said, look, if we don't update the faith, if we don't modernize it, hence they call themselves modernist, he said, if we don't modernize the faith and get rid of some of these miracles and other things, virgin birth, second coming, a belief that the Bible somehow the inerrant, infallible Word of God, we got to get rid of the substitutionary atonement. If we don't do that, nobody's going to listen anymore. And so we have to shed these things so that the people listen, so that people come to our churches and they grow. I grew up in a denomination that swallowed that line. And over the last 40, 50 years, that denomination has shriveled. And so have a number of other prominent denominations who took the bait. And what's interesting is churches that have followed the liberal approach have emptied out in the last several decades because people want to hear a word of God, not current events and political commentary. And the reason they've shrunk is they've abandoned God's Scripture. The only churches, really, that long-term survive and thrive are those churches, hear this, who hold steadfastly and eagerly and joyfully to the unadjusted gospel of Jesus. The only churches that are going to survive and thrive are churches that are distinctly Christian, deeply doctrinal, and confessional and biblical. Those are the churches that will survive because God honors the preaching and teaching of His Word. So, first, they have, the Word has to be heard, read, meditated on. Secondly, it has to be welcomed and accepted. But you know what? That's not enough. Because there's people that sit in churches every week and they hear it. And they even go, yeah, that's true. And they're not born again. The last word, submission. Or submitting. Or surrender. Or obedience. You can put a number of words in there. Verses 13 to 18. Hearing and accepting the Scriptures is not enough. Once the Word has been preached and it's been understood and it's been welcomed and embraced, the final step has to be what is being described in verses 13 to 18, submitting to it. That's the proof someone knows Christ. That's the proof that we're truly born again. We learn that what is going on here, you might have a little... uh, Notation above verse 13, Feast of the Booths Celebrated. This was a fall festival. It's kind of like the Jewish version of Thanksgiving. And what was going on here is the people had not been celebrating it. It had been neglected. 
this festival of booths, and they realized as the scriptures were preached, they weren't doing this, and so they were summoned to repentance and obedience. I'm going to pick up in verse 13. On the second day, the heads of the father's houses of all the people with the priests and the Levites came together to Ezra the scribe in order to study the words of the Torah. And they found it written in the law. I mean, this happens all the time when we hear preaching. We're like, oh yeah, I have drifted from that. That happens to me all the time when I hear good preaching. It's like, I got to get back to that. They found it written in the law that Yahweh commanded by Moses that the people of Israel should dwell in booths. Again, this is this fall festival during the feast of the seventh month. And that they should proclaim it and publish it in their towns, verse 15, in Jerusalem. Go out to the hills and bring olive branches and wild olive and myrtle and palm and other leafy trees to make booths as it is written. So the people went out, brought them, and made booths for themselves, each on his roof, and in their courts, and in the courts of the house of God, and in the square of the water gate, and in the square of the gate of Ephraim. And ladies and gentlemen, and boys and girls, and young people, would you please notice verse 17. And all the assembly of those who had returned from the captivity made booths, and lived in the booths. This went on for a few days. For from the days of Jeshua, Joshua, son of Nun, to the day of the people of Israel, they had not done so. What is the last sentence or phrase? And there was what? Great gladness or great rejoicing. Why? Because when you obey the word of God as the people of God, it brings joy. Even if God doesn't change your circumstances, even if your marriage keeps falling apart, even if the health diagnosis doesn't change, even if your situation at work or whatever is vexing thee and all the circumstances that weigh on us, even if our circumstances don't change, God-fearing obedience brings the blessing of God and joy into our context, whether our circumstances change or not. And that is exactly what went on. Their joy was very great. Nehemiah is telling the people, it's not enough to hear, and it's not even enough to embrace and agree with it. I have to obey it. And the very first command to the entire human race to obey is to repent and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. That is the entry point to the Christian life. And then once that has taken place, the Bible says obedience to God then in all He commands is the proof that we know God. The prophets are very clear. You can give lip service to all of this and not be truly saved. Jeremiah, I'm reading the book of Jeremiah right now, chapter 11, verse 4. God says, obey me and do everything I command you. That's not very hard to understand. Hard to do, but it's pretty clear. He didn't say obey me and do most of what I command. He says obey me and do everything I command you. Or Jesus himself, second member of the Trinity, John 14, 23, anyone who loves me, says Jesus, will obey my teaching. Or James 1, 22, don't merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves, do what it says. People in Nehemiah's day not only welcomed the word, they obeyed it and their joy was very great and it resulted in a spiritual awakening that broke out. All right, time to land the plane. What's the summons here? Five musts. Ready? One, I must repent and believe what God says about me to begin with. That's the entry point to all of this. 
If I don't know Christ, if I only sit in church and come to get some inspirational goodies and to feel blessed and go home, I'm not ready to be in a position of being related to God. I have to repent and I have to embrace and I have to surrender to Jesus Christ as Lord. That leads to spiritual rebirth. So the question this morning is, have you been reborn? Have you been through a radical spiritual rebirth reorientation? That's when transformation begins and the Holy Spirit moves in and we become one with Christ and He takes over and He begins to change us from the inside out. That's, I mean, that, the rest of this doesn't matter if that doesn't take place. But here's the other must once we are in a right relationship with God. We must sit under the regular preaching of the Word. It is a contradiction to say, oh yeah, I'm a Christian, but I, I don't regularly go to church. Or I bounce around to churches or I occasionally attend. Look at occasional attendance at a church produces occasional Christians. Hit or miss attendance produces a hit or miss Christian and hit or miss blessing in your life. The New Testament knows nothing of separating ourselves from the regular preaching of the Word and sitting under it. Thirdly, third must, I must spend time beyond Sunday regularly in God's Word reading and immersed in it and meditating on it. Most of us, that means we need some kind of a plan The great secret to Christian transformation that so many in the evangelical world have missed, the great secret to conquering addictions and God transforming us, the Puritan said, is meditation on God's Word on a regular basis throughout the day. Fourth must, I have to obey whatever I read, even in an area that's inconvenient to me or will make me unpopular. And the final must, if you have kids or grandkids, we must be helping our children get into the Scriptures. And dads, the onus is on us. Moms, secondly, it's on you. But it's getting our kids, not just saying go to Nexus, go to youth group, go to Awana, go to Sunday school. At home, I'm opening the Scriptures because the power of God is there, and I'm reading it with my family, and I'm helping them learn to read it on their own so that God's power is unleashed in my home. And so that is the fifth must here this morning because of the power in the Word of God. I close with this verse before we go to communion. Isaiah 40, verse 8. The grass withers. Some of you know this. And the flowers fade. What's the rest? But the Word of our God stands forever. That is the power in God's Word.